Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph. This is the 128th edition. For the program today, I'm going to continue um, sharing interviews, conversations as part of the series on artists and community activists resisting gentrification. This is a conversation with New York City-based artist Seth Tabachman, uh, who talks about the East Village, the Lower East Side of New York City, and the organizing of local artists and tenants uh, who have struggled against gentrification over many decades. Particularly, Seth talks about the squatting movement around avenues A, B, and C, uh, other streets in that neighborhood of New York, and the battles against uh, the eviction of self-organized housing blocks in the Lower East Side of New York. Also about the community gardens in that neighborhood, which were very important sites of community organizing and health, of course. This is um, a conversation we recorded in the context of a, a process and a project that I'm part of called Reverberation d'une crise encore, une enquête sonore sur les logements, the reverberations of an ongoing crisis, a sonic inquiry into the question of housing. And so stay tuned for future um, episodes of Free City Radio focused on that project. In the meantime, I'm going to share my conversation with Seth that I recorded in New York City about a month and a half ago. Here it is. Uh, my name is Seth Tabachman. I'm a comic book artist. Um, and uh, I was born in 1958. Um, I grew up in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, and I came to New York around 1976 and moved into the Lower East Side of Manhattan around 1979 um, and uh, started to produce a political comics magazine in 1979-1980 called World War III Illustrated, um, which was and is a collectively run comic book um, that specialize in comics on political issues. Um, and uh, that magazine was host to a number of different artists, uh, some of whom you might have heard of. Uh, Eric Drucker, Sabrina Jones, Peter Cooper, James Romberger, Mac McGill, uh, Fly, um, and um, has continued to be a place where new artists can present their work, particularly work that's on political themes. Uh, we started the magazine in 79 because there was no place to do comics on not only political themes, but anything serious in the American market at that time. Um, that changed dramatically um, over um, these 30 or 40 years. Um, so that in a lot of ways, we're keeping it going now um, as a way of maintaining continuity and intergenerational discourse with younger artists participating and some of the older artists participating but there isn't you know 
I, there, there are lots of opportunities for people to do comics on serious subject material now, many of which they're financially compensated so that they might actually be more attractive to young artists than World War III, which is an all-volunteer collective. Um, one issue in this project that not only you addressed uh, because of its location geographically, um, there was a lot of artists who lived in the East Village was housing um, and the squatters movement, but also just the, the massive commodification of lands in New York. Um, how was that process to try to like, was that one of the key issues that began this within World War Three and more broadly the community of artists that, that you're part of? Um. When we started the magazine, as the title implies, we were primarily focused on the Cold War and um, you know the the world situation at the time. But the local situation on the Lower East Side sort of became overwhelmingly present in our lives because that's where most of us were living. Um, so issues around housing, displacement, gentrification, and all the conflicts involved became central to the magazine for a number of years. And, um, you know, there were in the 80s and 90s a series of riots uh, related to evictions of squats and evictions of the homeless from the park, from Tompkins Square Park, that involved a lot of the artists in the magazine. So that this became not only a central theme in my work, but certainly a central theme in the work of Eric Drucker and the work of Paula Hewitt in the work of James Romberger. Um, throughout um, the 80s and 90s, um, and even to some degree to the present. Mm -hmm. um, so at this time in the East Village of New York, uh, there was this whole process to sort of undercut the identity of that area maybe just for people who aren't familiar with um, why that why is that important to think about today um okay um at the time i moved into the east village uh it was in a state of abandonment mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. one of the things that happens in urban areas throughout the industrialized world is that um, you know, um, funding for basic services is withdrawn and the infrastructure starts to collapse. And this happens to low-income communities all over, yeah. you know. I mean, look at Detroit for a number of years. So look at Cleveland, look at any number of places. Sure. So it was in a state of abandonment. Um, you know, um, the first day I moved in, um, a tenant in my building was stabbed in my doorway, you know, an older person. Uh, there was a lot of crime. There was a lot of drug dealing. Mm. There were a lot of abandoned buildings. There were buildings burning down. Um, residents had uh, trouble getting anything out of the city government. Um, they actually, there actually were situations where people held demonstrations at the precinct house to try to convince the police to arrest the drug dealers on the block because the police were not doing that. Um, and landlords tended to um, 
leave buildings in lousy conditions. They didn't want to invest money in buildings where most of the tenants were low income and were not going to provide them with a lot of money. So that um, people also had to take landlords to court for repairs. And that was the condition of the Lower East Side at that time. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of abandonment. There were vacant lots. Um, there were abandoned buildings. Um, there were also abandoned school buildings, abandoned mun municipal buildings. Um, and one of the things that people started to do was to take charge of those abandoned properties mm -hmm. so that people mm -hmm. uh, set up community gardens and vacant lots. People began to fix up abandoned buildings as housing or sometimes as community space. Um, and um, that was pretty widespread at a certain point that, um, you know, there was a lot of community organizing in the Lower East Side mm -hmm. in the first years I was there. Mm -hmm. And that was striking to me having come from a suburban background where people are fairly isolated. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, I was part of a tenants committee in my building. I was part of a block association on my block. That was all new stuff to me. Um, so there was a positive side to that abandonment also as it created the opportunity for people to organize um, in their own interests. Mm -hmm. And then what happened over um, a period of several years is that capital became interested in the Lower East Side and um, you know, started to develop um, market rate housing in in some spaces in the Lower East Side. And um, also there was, to some extent, um, there, were there were independent art galleries in the Lower East Side, which also became a means of getting wealthier people interested in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, so all of that was happening. And so then the problem for people would be staying there, not yeah. being kicked out. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, people had to organize not so much against the landlord not repairing buildings, but against the landlords attempting to throw people out of the buildings that were now were being repaired. Um, and uh, the people who'd, mm. uh, you know, established community gardens or squatted buildings were faced with the possibility of eviction and while we the area was under policed in the late 70s by the late 80s it was very much over policed mm -hmm. and um you know there were police trying to keep people from being in the park after mm -hmm. a certain hour and trying to harass people on the corners and so we had that to deal with mm -hmm. um and that became again, the subject of a lot of our art in terms of recording that mm -hmm. in comic strips about the Lower East Side, about the riots in Tompkins Park, etc. Mm -hmm. um, the situation today mm -hmm. is that Manhattan is very much gentrified and um, people are trying to hold on to whatever they have um, so that now there is a lot of tenant organizing that tends to go in the direction of trying to maintain or expand legal protections for tenants mm. um, so that um, there's a lot you know th there you know we actually did prevent 
rent increases for a few years in the form of having gotten a guy elected mayor who was fairly pro-tenant, which was Bill de Blasio, who's now been replaced by a right-wing figure who is a former police um, police captain and also um, is a landlord himself, and that's, um, that's Eric Adams, um, who has then allowed for rent increases again. So, um, you know, that's where the struggle in Manhattan is now. Well, thanks for sharing that. Often when um, people conceptualize the process around gentrification or like the total total revamping of buildings in a neighborhood, it's often seen in this sort of, um, I I guess, slogan based or cartoon style way where it's like it's like very limited to a few frames where it's like okay there's capital investment there's a landlord there's this process and then there's people opposing that not often is there sort of an understanding of like the interweaving systems that create that process right like um the fact that you know city officials need to sort of not prioritize tenant rights as you mentioned or the fact that um there's uh like a cultural reality to like you know uh changing a neighborhood in terms of political possibilities when there's a lot of artists in that neighborhood um who have the space and time to create work that's not institutional and is outside of the market that also creates like different visions or possibilities or like opens doors of you know what people think is possible so there's like the unspecific consequences of the fact that like there's all these artists creating work that challenges the sort of boundaries of how society should be conceived whether it's around property whether it's around gender whether it's around you know many issues it sort of opens possibilities so i'm wondering if you could share any thoughts about that sort of deeper cut um, of how gentrification and and the sort of limiting of space socially and economically affects the vision of a society or a city? Um, real obviously, um, I don't think it's news to anyone that most artists don't make a lot of money. A few artists do and most artists don't. And so artists are, for to a large extent, educated people who need a cheap place to live and a cheap place to work and a lot of space to create in and so artists tend to be to to move into low inexpensive neighborhoods where they can afford to live um and obviously um particularly fine arts is about um, selling works of art to wealthy people. So wealthy people are attracted to artists and so a lot of artists being in a neighborhood makes wealthy people feel like they could move there. So landlords tend to use artists to open up neighborhoods that people might be afraid of, that you know middle-class white people might be afraid of and make those neighborhoods attractive. Um, so artists have a kind of temporary entry into those neighborhoods in the Lower East Side, for instance. Uh, there were a couple years where 
um, landlords were renting out storefront spaces at about $500 a month to people who were basically recently graduated art students to set up their own galleries. And so we had an art gallery on every block in the Lower East Side um, between about 1983 and 1986, after which um, the landlords upped the rent, there being no commercial rent protections in New York, threw those people out and got more expensive stores in those spaces. So those spaces were used to make the area attractive to more middle-class people. Um, so that role of the artist was highly problematic and highly controversial among artists because on the one hand, artists are desperate to get opportunities. Um, and on the other hand, uh, once the neighborhood would become gentrified, artists themselves would not be able to live there. So that was complex, controversial. I know artists who had many different roles in that. Um, but in the long run, you know, those of us who lived there had to keep living there and we had to find a way to keep living there. So that, um, you know, we had a very different relationship to this question. One thing that comes up is like, the sort of detailed organizing that takes place when you have to like push to arrange for a housing co-op or push to change a specific municipal policy around spending on social housing. And this is happening in Montreal right now, which is you have sort of a left center municipal government that is open to those ideas. But in order to um, see any sort of implementation, there needs to be a push. At the same time, they're not slowing condo development, right? So there's these um, competing forces. Obviously, the finance of condo development and real estate has a lot more power. So I'm just wondering, like, you know, across a few generations of activist artists, there's often been this sort of um, distance from dealing with sort of the technicalities of implementing, you know, these changes right like and people don't have the expertise or the skills or even the finances often but i'm just wondering if you have any reflections on like trying to come to terms with those types of processes um or any experiences that you have around like that sort of counter institutional or alter institutional versus like dealing with power basically okay um i i'm sure each locality has its unique challenges. Sure. Um, New York City is a Democratic Party town, um, and one would hope that would be a good thing, but in a lot of ways it isn't, um, because we have an incredibly corrupt Democratic Party. Uh, we had a very corrupt Democratic Party throughout the 70s and 80s. Um, there uh, was a guy named Sheldon Silver who recently got convicted, but he was really the most powerful Democrat in New York City. He was a state senator, um, and um, he actually managed to keep a large amount of property in his district vacant because 
he knew if it were built for low-income housing, it would become full of Hispanics and he would no longer have the Jewish voting bloc that would keep him in office. And it wouldn't have been acceptable to develop it as market-rate housing because it was um, an area that had been um, low-income housing, housing and been demolished with the promise that it would be rebuilt better, that it would be rebuilt without you know, that it was seen as slum housing, so okay. it was demolished. And he then kept it vacant uh, for a long period of time. And um, everybody knows he kept that it was him. Okay. You know, and that's not what he was convicted of. He was convicted of other dealings with landlords and other dealings that were corrupt. Um, but, you know, he was a major problem. Um, and he was seen as a liberal um as a pro tenant person but actually um you know the politics were very distorted mm. um and you know we had you know people like Ed Koch, David Dinkins, Michael Bloomberg and now we have Eric Adams all of whom you know um have a sort of liberal facade and um create a lot of problems for people so that to deal with that you had to have a lot of grassroots organizing mm -hmm. of people on a local level who would you know maintain their own individual demands which and, and who were very often portrayed as being oh you're being terribly selfish you want this this and this well yeah we do you know um you know and and you know very often you were put in the position of attacking a seemingly progressive figure like David Dinkins, who is New York's first black mayor, and now we have Eric Adams, who is New York's second black mayor. Um, you know, um, so that's been a very problematic aspect of New York politics, that um, there is a a liberal superstructure built on a very conservative structure mm -hmm. in the political machine here. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Yeah. Well, and, and just in terms of like activists dealing with that, like confronting power, but also like winning tangible um, gains in terms of like securing social housing units, right? Like sort of like thinking about like, um, the policy aspect, right? Like, because there's often in activism a lot of focus on the demands, which is super important to change the political conversation. But then, like, stepping from that into, like, the sort of the process, you know, uh, the technicalities. Um, just any reflections on, on it? Because that's a huge challenge, right? Like, and it's something I think a lot of activists haven't really worked out. Uh, the process is that people talk to each other and get organized. Mm. That's the process that, you know, people get together and they, you know, start to talk to their next door neighbors, basically. Mm. I mean, that's what the process is. So that, that sort of grassroots framework is really the basis. Yeah, I, I think it's the only basis you've got. Um, Everything else is a little weird. Mm -hmm. Please share any additional thoughts on, on, on that. Like sort of remaining focused on the, that sort of neighborhood block by block. 
Well, I mean, I just remember my first experiences with um, a tenant organization was that, okay, here's what I think. Um, It makes a big difference whether or not people like to get organized, are familiar with organizing, or familiar with activism. Uh, one of the good things that happened in my building on Third Street was that there were a lot of older people in the building who had um, been part of the anti-war movement during Vietnam and who actually liked political organizing. So that you know, we would have a big meeting in the hallway and, you know, dealing with the problems the landlord was creating. And these people had tremendous interest and patience for this subject and were willing to put a lot of time into it and seemed to really enjoy talking about it. Mm. Um, and I think that, um, I think that that made us a very well-organized building. Mm. Um, not everybody feels that way. Not everybody wants to do that. Um, I remember at the time I was a college student and I was living with a number of guys to split the rent on the apartment. And I remember I was sitting in a meeting in the hallway and after the meeting I came back into the apartment and my roommate said, what are you doing hanging out in the hallway with all those old people? Oh. You know? And I said, oh, I'm trying to... Um, make sure we can continue to live here and he said you want to live here oh I'm gonna be really successful and live in a penthouse someday you know so depending on the attitudes of people what they feel benefits them you know that he believed that he was gonna be rich someday and he didn't need that tenants union and they were a bunch of annoying old people you know um, and I I was pretty aware that I wasn't going to be rich anytime soon mm. and that I, I was not optimistic about my financial prospects and I recognized those older people in the building as having a lot to offer me. Mm. So I think, you know, what people's attitudes are about getting organized makes a big difference as to whether they can be organized mm. and whether they're going to be successful. That was a conversation with Seth DeBachman, uh, who is a activist and an artist. He's also an educator in the arts. Uh, he's published many uh, comic books as part of the World War III Illustrated Collective project and magazine. Um, this interview about opposition to gentrification in the East Village, Lower East Side of New York is part of an ongoing series that I've been producing for a project called Reverberation d'une crise encore an enquête sonore sur les logements, the reverberations of an ongoing crisis, uh, an inquiry into the question of housing. And this has been another edition of Free City Radio. We broadcast every Wednesday on CKUT 90.3 FM at 11 a.m. on CGLO 1690 a.m. Also in GeoGiage, Montreal on Tuesdays at 1 o'clock and on CKUW 95.9 in Winnipeg Tuesdays at 8 a.m. and on CFRC in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 on Wednesdays at 101.9 FM. You can find Free City Radio as a podcast both through Spotify and Apple Podcasts and our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. Please encourage a friend to tune in and thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week.
Run around, run away from your America while it burns in the streets. I'll be here standing on top of the mountain, shouting down what I see. Seen the pig with the pot out of confusion that he tried to release. Seen the sun coming over the horizon, straight across from the east. Seen the kings and the soldiers, all the throne and So immune to defeat Hey, here they come with a technicolor head 